area but have subsequently been removed, right, in one way or another, is one of the tools in our toolbox of conservation that we can use to redress the conservation, the biodiversity extinction crisis that we're living in. That was Dr. Joanna Lambert, Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Conservation Biology at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's the principal investigator of the American Canid Project, and her current research looks at how species like gray wolves and coyotes are adapting to the presence of humans on landscapes. You've been listening to KBU News In-Depth. I'm Althea Billings. Thanks for being with us. You are tuned in to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. Hey, KBOO listeners. KBOO cut through the clouds during our end-of-year campaign thanks to support from listeners like you. When we meet our campaign goals, we can continue to bring you colorful, radiant rays of radio. Thank you, and keep tuning in for unique music, cutting-edge news, and transformative public affairs on the airwaves. To you, the nine to fiver, just making your way home. To you, the all night driver, out in your cab alone. To you, waiting for lunch break, as the minutes drag so slow. Take courage, turn the volume up, it's Labor Radio. Good evening and welcome to Labor Radio of the Working Class by the Working Class for the Working Class. Tonight we're going to be going through lesson number three in Secrets of a Successful Organizer, a labor notes book by Alexandra Bradbury, Mark Brenner, and Jane Slaughter with permission. This lesson can be found on the website labornotes.org. Secrets of a Successful Organizer, lesson three, map your workplace and its leaders. You've learned the art of one-on-one conversations. You've recognized that you don't need to recruit everyone at once and gotten past the assumption that nobody cares. Organizing starts with the resources you have. Maybe for now it's just you and one other person. Next, you'll want to analyze the power and relationships that exist in your workplace already. One of the smartest ways to start is by drawing up a comprehensive picture of your workplace. 
Understanding who does what where, including management, is your first step to shifting power. People are already organized. Your workplace may feel like a disorganized mess, but the truth is you're not starting from zero. There's organization there already, though it might not have anything to do with the union. Are there carpools, for instance, family ties, a rumor mill? If John didn't show up for his shift, who would have his number and call him up and find out if he was okay? If Monique came out of the supervisor's office in tears, who would meet her in the break room to give her a hug and ask what happened? People are social creatures who form bonds, bonds anywhere we go, but it's especially true in a workplace where we're under pressure and relying on each other to get things done. We get to know each other's strengths and weaknesses, size up who we can trust. We figure out ways to pass around important news. So your next task is to find and build on the organization that's already there, already there. First, you'll need to map out the many existing networks, and then you'll begin to knit them together into your union network. Tapping into existing groups. Every workplace is organized at least two ways, the way management has assigned things and the way workers themselves organize. You should understand both. There are work groups created by management, people who interact every day because of the work they do. For instance, the emergency department described above was divided into various workspaces, the observation area, the pediatric area, jobs, nurses, nurses and paramedics, and shifts. Different work groups will have different degrees of power on the job, depending on the factors such as skill and whether they're in a position to bottleneck the flow of work. Certain jobs are ideally positioned to be nodes of tr communication, for instance, in a hospital, the cafeteria cashiers and the transporters who wheel parent patients around. There are also social groups who may hang out at lunchtime or outside of work, who buys lottery tickets together, who shares a running joke. Social groups often form around people who have something in common, for instance, smokers, young workers, people who attend the same church, or people who speak the same language. Both work groups and social groups create connections among their members. You can draw on these connections to figure out strategies that unite your coworkers and use people's natural tendency to stick up for those close to them. Beware of divide and conquer. Nurses overcame the stereotype that the union is only for certain people. Often social groups will form along racial or ethnic lines. Sometimes even work groups are racially segregated because of management's hiring or promotion policies. In these cases, we need to, you need to be doubly sensitive and make sure that from the start, you're involving leaders from all groups. Look for natural leaders. Every workplace has informal leaders who aren't elected or appointed, they just are, and they influence others in their group. If you have a message to communicate, reach the leaders of the informal groups. You can bet the word will get out to everyone. Think about your coworkers and ask around. When someone has a problem, who do they go to for help, defense, or advice? Who do they ask when they want the facts? Who do they trust, respect, admire? Certain names usually come up over and over. In one hospital, a certain nurse was known on the floor as the mayor. Don't just ask, watch. Organizer Ellen Norton suggested that you observe carefully when people are together. We look for workers who can answer coworkers' questions. 
we observe the dynamics in the room. Who responds? Who defers to whom? Who understands the union? Who understands what the boss is doing? Is everyone mentioning a worker who is not present? I want to meet that person. We also look for people who are good judges of their coworkers. How well do they describe their coworkers' interests and, and concerns before they brought them to the meeting? When management goes on the offensive, who responds in a way that educates her coworkers? Who is able to soothe their fears afterward? Fundamentally, a leader is someone who has followers. That means there are others who will take an action, sign the petition, wear the sticker, attend a rally, join the strike when this person asks. There are usually multiple leaders in a workplace, often tied to the many work and social groups. Different leaders might have sway among the younger workers, the moms, the basketball players, the people who work in a a certain department, or the night shift. There might be leaders of different social cliques. Someone might have just one or two followers. What if you're not the leader? You probably aren't, at least not for everyone. Maybe your friend Ann follows your lead, but you sense that Ben doesn't trust you. You've noticed he always waits to see what Carlos is going to do. That doesn't make you a failure. On the contrary, you're thinking like an organizer. You've spotted another possible leader, Carlos. Here's another story. Finding leaders in a meatpacking plant. In lesson one, you read how stewards in a meatpacking plant in Pasco, Washington, organized their co-workers to resist harassment. But to do that, the core group of activists first had to find and recruit the natural leaders. Maria Chavez was at the meeting where potential leaders were discussed. We drew a map of the plant and made a list of all the production lines, she said. We sat down by lines to choose volunteers. The job of the volunteers was to inform people on their line, to distribute flyers, invite them to meetings, and answer their questions. Our goal was to have three volunteers on each line, said her co-worker, Maria Martinez. A line could have 20 to 40 workers. We looked for people who didn't let management push them around and for people who had a good way of expressing themselves and speaking out. That, That didn't mean we were looking for the loudest or the pushiest people. Some of the best leaders had a really quiet way about them. We looked for people that management respected and that workers respected. Martinez often also looked for people who weren't disciplined often. When you see a person like that speaking up, she said, you think there must be a real problem going on here. Also, it was harder for management to retaliate against members who are known as good workers, hard workers, and with good records. Once they had their list of potential recruits, Martinez, Chavez, and the other planners divided up the list and began holding organizing conversations like the ones described in Lesson 2. They sat down with each one in the cafeteria and asked how she felt about work, giving her a chance to express her frustrations. I'd explain what we were doing, Martinez said, that we were building a network to get people together to try to make changes. She would invite the person to a meeting of other volunteers. That's when we started to see our fear, to lose our fear, said Chavez. At those meetings, we saw that we weren't alone. We had a plan for working together to achieve something. Bring the leaders together as a team. Remember the bullseye model from lesson one. The people who already have followers are the ones who you want to draw into your core group of organizers and the next circle of activists. These are the people you should spend the most time with. Go out of your way to get to know them. Have good organizing conversations where you mostly listen, learn what they care about, and help them develop the organizing attitude. Time spent with these leaders will pay dividends. As your organizing continues, you will always be on the lookout for new leaders. 
In an organizing drive, Norton said, we constantly build the organizing committee throughout the campaign. We might give one committee member unsigned, unsigned union cards, but another coworker brings the signed cards back. That's a potential committee member. Who gets their coworkers to wear buttons, come out to leaflet, or march on the bus? They are committee members. Most people are both leaders and followers. The union president might look to one rank and filer to be his tech guru and another to navigate city politics. Someone might be acknowledged leader of her work group but also always follow the lead of the chief steward. Each individual leader doesn't need to know how to do everything, but a team of leaders together can combine the qualities that will make your campaigns succeed. The strength of any core group will depend on how many people look to its members for leadership. If there are holes in your core group, there will be holes in your participation. For instance, if no respected leader from the night shift is involved, don't be surprised when you can't get many night shifters to join the sticker day. Here's a box at the bottom of the page. The the 1 to 10 rule. A strong organizing team should include leaders from every department and shift and from every social group. Aim for one core group organizer or activist for every 10 workers. For instance, in a department of 30 workers, you want three activists, ideally not just any three people, but the three most influential leaders representing different work or social groups. Leader versus leader. Here's a story. On one hospital unit, organizer Marcia Neumeier recalled a classic divide. Everyone is angry at the horrible manager, but the high seniority nurses have found ways to manage it. The low seniority nurses bear the brunt of the manager's abuse, so they want to do something. Tensions flared up when a nurse filed a complaint against five co-workers. Two leaders among the less senior nurses wrote up a petition defending them. Neumeier coached the young women by phone on how to begin gathering signatures. I worked with them because they were responsive, fast, and anxious to do something, she said. All good reasons, but not enough. The missing ingredients was buy-in from senior nurse leaders. The first day went well, but after the petition was handed off to the night shift, a senior nurse took it, refused to sign it, and held it all night so he could talk it over with another nurse who was considered the day shift leader. The two men were frustrated that they hadn't been consulted first. They thought we should have met first as a unit and come up with a plan of action, Niemeyer said. They were right. On the other hand, one of the female nurses who started the petition was upset, and she was also right, that even though the day shift leader should have been consulted, he could have respected the initiative and asked to consult or regroup instead of killing the whole thing. The snafu reflected the division between more or less senior nurses and perhaps between men and women, too. The young nurses discovered that some of their co-workers would follow their lead, but others wouldn't. We had different leadership structures in this one unit, Niemeyer concluded, and hadn't done enough to bring them all together. As a result, we lost momentum and that organizing opportunity died, died down. But we debriefed, we learned, and those leaders were are back up and running with new skills. It's not the loudest person. Lakeisha Harrison helped form member action teams in her AFSME local. She warned the person who jumps up and says, I'm the leader, is usually not the leader. They just want to be the union person, the person with information, the person who saves the day. 
But leadership is not about doing things for other people. It's about getting them to do things for themselves. Nor is the chronic complainer necessarily your best ally. The person who's known as a whiner is unlikely to have coworkers respect. Some people will volunteer as leaders, but they can't follow through. They can't bring others around. They're too cautious or they're not li- really liked by their coworkers. If that's if that becomes apparent, you could ask that person to introduce you to other potential leaders in the department. To separate the posers from the true leaders, Harrison used little tests. We ask a potential uh, member action team leader to bring four people to a meeting or get a bunch of flyers out. They do these things and they become an MAT organizer. Often they've done this stuff already. They're already trying to be helpful because they're natural leaders. If you just tuned in, Labor Radio, KBOO, Portland, you're listening to the Secrets of a Successful Organizer, Lesson 3. If you've liked what you hear, you depend on Labor Radio, consider contributing to KBOO, community radio, listener-supported, non-corporate media. Go to kboo.fm and make a contribution. Everyone has room to grow. As important as it is to seek out those who are with natural leadership qualities, you'll find they still have plenty of room to grow. Some might have big egos, struggle to control their tempers, or even be shy. Some might be in the habit of doing all the union work themselves instead of involving their coworkers. As an organizer, part of your job is to help leaders in your workplace develop their skills and become stronger leaders. Leaders often emerge from fights, even failed ones, Niemeyer says, and how you support them, how you let them lead during that fight, what you talk through with them during the fight, how you debrief with them after the fight is what it's all about. A leader who goes through with a fight sometimes comes out of it with more depth, sophistication, and skills. Nurses in one hospital department had just finished a campaign that got lots of people involved, battling understaffing. To keep the organizing going, the two main leaders decided to start an elected union committee for the department. To their surprise, lots of people wanted to join. Fifteen ran and twelve were elected. Niemeyer talked with two primary leaders about the bullseye model. She encouraged them to think about which of the new committee members already showed leadership qualities. You two don't have the capacity to develop all 12 at the same time, she told them. You should assess who are the two or three who are most likely to move into the center of the bullseye with you. Those are the ones you want to encourage to become more likely, like you. When there are four or five of you, then those four or five can work on the others. Help leaders learn. Here are a few ways activists can help each other develop as leaders. Agree on your goals. Your bottom line is to build the power of union members. Talk about it, come to an agreement on what building that power means in your workplace and beyond. You'd be surprised how many leaders are not clear that power comes from active members. Hold each other accountable. When you take an organizing assignment like talking to so-and-so, follow through on it and make clear you expect the same from other leaders. Team up. Stay in frequent touch and help each other problem solve. Leaders with complementary skills can cross-train each other. Niemeyer says, I had a leader who had great people skills, but she was nervous to round, walk through the whole workplace, checking in with everyone. 
through the hospital, so she would round with me. I would model one-on-one organizing conversations, show her how to navigate management, where all the break rooms were, and how to constantly collect intel. I teamed her up with other leaders who round well. Now she's training others to round, and we have uh, raised expectations that rounding is part of a leader's responsibility. Form trusting relationships, friendships. Give extra weight to your relationships with leaders. Prioritize their texts and emails. If they're targeted, make sure you have their back. Educate each other. Pass around articles. Talk about the big big picture. Organize democratically. We've put a lot of emphasis on the importance of leaders, but there's a flip side. Your coworkers might sign your petition out of personal loyalty or trust, but if your agenda isn't really theirs, There are limits to how much you can get people to do. When people go to the mat, it's because they care about what's at stake and feel like it's their fight. They're part of the team steering the ship. So organizing democratically isn't just the right thing to do, it's also the best way to build power. Democracy has a structural side. For instance, if stewards elected or are stewards elected or appointed, Is it hard for rank and filers to meet the qualifications to run for office? You can push to change these kinds of rules in your union's bylaws. But democracy also goes deeper than what the bylaws say. It's about who's making the decisions from the shop floor to union-wide activities. People can tell when they're in charge and when they're not. If you're going to ask people to take big risks, you better make sure they're part of the process to get there. The rank-and-file reformers who, are elected to, who were elected to lead the Chicago Teachers Union in 2010 took this principle to heart. Once they won office, they didn't let everyone go home and let them handle things. They pushed for more involvement, more debate, more discussion. Sometimes that debate, debate was rough and tumble. Sometimes it took a lot of time. A majority didn't necessarily agree, yet everything the new leaders were putting f- with everything the new leaders were putting forth, risky tactics, untested strategies like parent alliances, and the need to build toward a strike. But the leaders who wanted to radically transform their union recognized that they could only succeed if members owned the decisions. They argued for a clear vision and dr- dove into democratic debate over the way forward with faith as the members when presented with the same facts and analysis the teachers had, as the leaders had, would come to the same conclusions. They were right. Unionism at its core is about taking action together. Too often officers or staff present members with, here's the plan, are you in or are you out? Sometimes this may be necessary, but it's not optimal, and it will limit how committed members are to the action. It's much better to involve everyone in the process that leads you there. The choice to be in or out evaporates when everyone was in from the beginning. Democracy means everyone. In a democratic union, every member should be able to participate. For instance, read the contract, attend meetings, vote in elections, regardless of whether he has a disability or what language he speaks. It might Take organizing to push your local to add a wheelchair ramp, translate materials, or provide interpreters, but it's worth the effort. The union will be stronger when everyone can be involved. After the food and commercial workers began providing simultaneous interpretation between English and Spanish in meetings of its meatpacking division, workers came up and said, I've been coming to this meeting for years, and this is the first time that I understand what was being said and what was going on, according to Melinda Thielen of the Union's 
Health and Safety Office. The best practice is to conduct meetings in both or all languages so the non-ancient English speakers aren't singled out. That's how they run workshops at Workers United, a union that represents retail and factory workers in New York and New Jersey. Some parts are in Spanish, others in English, and simultaneous interpretation goes both ways. Service Employees Local 26 in Minnesota does the same thing, asking anyone who speaks only one language to wear an interpretation headset. Those who speak only English experience what it's like to have to use interpretation too. This setup puts members on a more equal footing. Sometimes we think we'll just talk at people in their language, and that's good enough, says Thielen, but every good trade union unionist knows a huge part of our job is listening to people, trying to make sure it goes in both directions. Qualities of a good organizer. Effective organizers are good at their jobs and respected by people they work with. They have the trust of their coworkers. Their opinions carry weight when they offer advice, people listen. The best organizers are motivated by a strong sense of justice and clear principles. They're responsible, honest, and compassionate. They're confident, even courageous. Organizers must be good listeners. They know you don't have to be the most vocal and to have the biggest impact. They bring people together, welcoming new coworkers on the job and looking for ways to involve every member. Organizers move people to collective action. They don't just solve problems alone, they equip their coworkers to solve problems together. They put the interests of the group first ahead of their individual's concerns. They don't operate as lone rangers, they respect group decisions. Good organizers are knowledgeable about their contract but not afraid to admit when they don't know the answer. They can stay cool under pressure and handle stress and conflict. They're willing to stand up to management and they can inspire others to stand up for themselves as well. Make a map to guide you. Drawing a map will help you bring the work groups, social groups and other leaders to light. This visual tool will help you and your fellow organizers pool your knowledge to see who's where, who looks up to whom, who hangs out with whom, and who's facing the same problems. A map can help you set up a member-to-member network or identify where more stewards are needed. Most important, maps make power relationships visible. Making the map should be a group effort. You'll find it useful at any stage of organizing, whether you're a long-standing committee in a mid-campaign or a group of would-be organizers just thinking about how to get started. Because it's visual, the map can aid communication even when not everyone speaks the same language and it's fun. Can you get a list? It's best to work from a list of all employees in your workplace or department, whatever you're mapping. Otherwise, it's surprisingly easy to forget people, especially those who don't work closely. You don't work closely with part-timers or those with unique jobs. Maybe you can get this list from your union office, especially if you're a steward. If not, is there a list at work you can discreetly copy and take a picture of? The boss may distribute an emergency phone list or post a schedule. Be resourceful. Exercise. Draw your workplace map. You'll need butcher paper, color markers, sticky dots. 
Start with the physical space. First, use a flip chart or large sheet of paper and a black marker to outline the area or building, showing entrances, exits, and windows. Label the offices, production lines, storage areas, shipping and receiving docks, lunchrooms, and bathrooms. Add details such as machines, desks, water coolers. If the building is large, make maps of different areas. Be sure the map is large enough to show information clearly. Add motion. Draw the flow of work or production and or the paths that different people make through the space regularly in different colors. Are there spots where the flow of work tends to get bottlenecked? These could be important pressure points. Who works there? Are there places where people congregate, like the break room or the proverbial water cooler? These could be good places for outreach conversations or group gatherings. Add all the people. Sticky dots work well to represent workers. You might use different colors to indicate supervisors, union activists, various jobs or shifts. Mark the dots with initials or, na or names. Exercise. Map out how people connect. Mark, mark the groups. Draw a circle around the people who form each work group and each social group using different colors. If members of a group are scattered all over, indicate them in some way, such as with a certain color or check mark. Who works together? Who are all the smokers? Who carpools together? Who are the Spanish speakers? As you identify groups, discuss them. How does this group relate to management? What are the biggest problems affecting this group? Keep your observations respectful and factual, not gossipy. The idea is to find insights that will help you organize with these coworkers, not repeat stereotypes or gripes about them. Mark the leaders. Indicate each group's leader with a corresponding color. Who is the main leader in this group? Are there other leaders in this group? Map out union support. Who's part of your organizing team so far? If there's not a formal group, choose some criteria. Who gathers signatures on the latest petition? Who's helping to make this map? Who also marked the wider circle of union supporters? Who signed the last petition? Who's a dues-paying member? Exercise. Analyze your workplace map. Discuss your map. You now have a great deal of information about interactions in your workplace. This is a good place to stop and ask yourselves, what do you see? Even when people know their workplace well, the map will help them see it with new eyes. Ask open-ended questions. What's going on here? Do you see any patterns? How does news travel? What new questions r does this map raise? The stories that come out will be about issues that are bothering people. Keep adding to the map, marking which workers are being harassed by management, for instance, and which are facing layoffs. If the map gets too crowded, start tracking the information another way. Your map, use your map to identify areas and leaders to focus on. Making workplace dynamics visible puts valuable information on the table. See this group over here, the one that we've never contacted, had contact with? Who can talk to someone in that group? The next time you go to work, look around and compare the reality to your map. Did you did we overlook anyone? Exercise. Make a map and make a chart too. 
In some workplaces, everyone moves all over the place and a physical map would be a hopeless jumble. In that case, make a chart instead. Even if you made a map, you'll find a chart, a chart helpful too. Charts are easy to update and allow you to see at a glance where your union is weak and where it is strong. Make a big version to display on the wall. Enter the same information into a spreadsheet you can print out and carry around with you. Make a grid. You might use columns for different work areas or job titles and 